Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. And a very blessed Lord's Day to each of you. Good to have you in the house. Did you know that the future is actually now? The Bible is very clear that the time is at hand. We should never think of eternity as a time very far away. In fact, the trumpet's sound is just a second away, a heartbeat away. We are living on the very edge of eternity. Now, some people don't think we should study the book of Revelation, or maybe that we shouldn't study prophecy because we're kind of weirdos do that. But I remind you that 25% of the Bible is actually prophecy. If that's being a nut, then so be it. At least I'm screwed on to the right bolt. Amen. <laughs> and so I am glad to be in the book of Revelation along with you today. And so let's go there to chapter 17. Throughout the month of January, we have been studying this great book. We've learned so much. By the way, those of you that are joining us online, we love you. I know some of you are not feeling well. I know that I've prayed for many of you that I knew about this week and others that maybe just checking us out and kicking in the tire of the car you're about to buy. I hope that you'll come in. We love you. But throughout January, we've been studying this great book and we've learned so much. Now, the way that uh, I've adopted to do it is to take the first month of the year for several years now and go through about one chapter. It allows us to uh, really take our time. And, uh, but if we did it at that pace, it would take us several years to get through it. However, I will say someone suggested to me this week that the way things are looking, I'd better speed things up because otherwise I'll be finishing our series in heaven. So. <laughs> but the amazing thing about God's people who hold a Bible in their hand is that we know where history is going. And we also know how we're going to get there. One of the many privileges of being a Bible-believing Christian is that of the confidence of knowing the future. We know. In fact, do you realize that over 200 times in the Bible, mostly in the New Testament, it says we know. 200 times we know. Well, if Christians kind of act like know-it-alls, well, we are in one sense. We know. Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. That's not just speaking about humans. That's the creation, the world itself. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, 
a house not made with hands, no way, but eternal in the heavens. 1 John 3 and verse 2, but we know, we know that when he shall appear, and he's going to appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Born again, blood-washed saints of God are knowers. It certainly gives us a leg up every day as we wake up. Now, we may not especially like all the individual events, and they trouble us, but it doesn't shake what we even sang about this morning. It doesn't shake us. We know what's going to happen. We know where we're headed. Ultimately, we know God wins. God wins. I don't care how terrible the news is. I don't care who wins or who doesn't win. The fact of the matter, God wins. And I'm glad to be able to announce today that we know these things. The Bible tells us that we can know these things. Scripture gives us previews of judgment that make any other catastrophe that we see as tragic and as heart-wrenching as they might be, really small and insignificant. As you read the Bible, we know that this universe we live in is going to fly apart. Now, I believe that we ought to be good stewards of this world and the earth, but I'm going to tell you, if you think that you're going to save the earth, you are just kidding yourself. This earth is not going to be saved. It is going to be remade, God said. It is going to be burnt up and made new. We know that the Bible says there's going to be an east an increase of earthquakes and other natural disasters, diseases of all kinds and hunger. We know about the destruction of all earth's water systems, the seas and the rivers and all that's in them is going to die. We read in the Bible that a hundred pound hailstones are going to be flung at the earth in an unprecedented way fires everywhere. We know that there's going to be tens of thousands of Jewish spirit-filled preachers of all things, 144,000 Jewish men preaching powerfully for God. We also know, sadly, the greatest anti-Semitic Holocaust as none other in there's been some bad ones, and even today, but the ultimately the glorious revival and salvation of all Israel, Romans chapter 11. We know about the incredible joy of God's church. The bride of Christ is going to fly out of here, gone, and we won't be here in this tribulation period. The church is not appointed to wrath, Scripture says. We have so many things that we know and give us peace because of that. And yet at the same time, there weighs a deep weight of responsibility upon us because we know the ultimate price of rejecting Jesus Christ. We know Jesus is coming soon, and we are to keep our eyes open. Now today, our attention is turned to Revelation 17. There is coming a time on earth that just before the return of Christ, and actually it has already begun. As John 
said, the spirit of Antichrist doth already work. There is going to be a corrupt and dangerous worldwide religious system. It is actually the final empire of Satan. And it is directed on earth by his demon-possessed leader called the Antichrist or the Beast. Surprisingly, in that time, it is going to be a very, very religious time, a very spiritual time. I remind you that the leader is called the Antichrist, not anti-Satan. He's called Christ. He's going to appear as a very good person. Think about a good person and in the world, maybe that's the kind of person who would more likely be the Antichrist, not a, especially a bad one. This final satanic world empire that is ruled by the Antichrist will be known by the name Babylon because it has philosophical and belief links back to the original false religion back at the Tower of Babel, which was led by Nimrod. Nimrod was the original type of the Antichrist. And so strangely, the closer we get to the end, the more religious people will become. Now, when I say religious, I don't mean true religion, as the book of James talks about. Pure religion, the kind of religion I see here at the home church by Bible-believing, Christ-loving people. Oh no, the kind of religion will be emotional and thrilling and heady and full of signs and wonders and all kinds of good works being done. But it will be as deadly as a rattlesnake. This false religion will be an amazing display of unity. People from every denomination will come together and create a new one. But all of that is only temporary because once the Antichrist and the false prophet are fully in power, there will begin a demonic inquisition. In fact, the Bible says that the false prophet will be drunk with the blood of the saints. And it will go back to a period when Baptists and other God-fearing people were killed just because of what they believed. And so we looked last week and began to understand who this religious harlot is going to be. God used the very strong language of being a prostitute. Today we're going to explain that, verses 7 through 12. I don't know that we'll get all the way to verse 12 today. But I ask you the question this morning, are you looking for the return of Jesus Christ? Keep your eyes looking. A defendant was on trial for murder in Oklahoma, and there was strong evidence indicating guilt. But there was no corpse. So in the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, knowing the client would probably be convicted, resorted to a trick. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all, the lawyer said as he looked at his watch. Within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into this courtroom. He then looked at the courtroom door. The jurors, somewhat stunned, all looked eagerly at the door. A minute passed. Nothing happened. Finally, a lawyer said, actually, I made that statement up. But I noticed you all looked on with anticipation. So I therefore put it to you that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether everyone, 
was even killed, and I insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. So the jury, clearly confused, retired to deliberate. Only a few minutes later, they returned and pronounced the verdict. Guilty as charged. But how? The lawyer said, you must have had some doubt. I saw all of you staring at the door. Answered the jury foreman, oh, we did look, but your client didn't. Let me tell you something this morning. I'm looking at the eastern gates, and this is no trick. Jesus is going to come through any minute. I'm looking for that day. Are you looking for the return of Christ? I hope you are. He's about ready to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking into this amazing book. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll collect our minds and that you'll just kind of melt away, Lord, any pressures and stresses and concerns and heartaches and burdens and any even maybe preconceived uh, false ideas for a few moments, Lord. And I pray that you'll give us spiritual ears and spiritual eyes. And I pray that, Lord, those will might be no offense uh, taken, Lord, as we actually say names today. But uh, the sense of this, Lord, I believe it's the right thing. Give us, I pray, Lord, uh, an understanding heart in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's remind ourselves a little bit where we are. Satan has a coming empire. This coming empire is two tracks. It is a freight train that is about ready to hit this world. And it comes on two tracks. It comes on a religious track and a political track, a spiritual side and an economic side. The spiritual side is given a name. Chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, verse number 5. It says, the name of the coming one world religion is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. That's a long name for a church. Someday during that time, someone's going to go up to somebody else and say, hey, what church do you go to? They're going to say, first mystery, Babylon the great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth church. Someone's going to ask another person, where do you go? They say, I go to second mystery, Babylon the great. But that's the only church that's going to be available. Any real believers are going to be underground, and if they're found out, they'll be murdered. But notice the first name, it says mystery. Now, why is it a mystery? Because it's more than a geographical location. And even though the pictures here are very graphic, and even the pictures we show here, these are all just uh, depictions. This is not exactly how that would be. It's, these are types. But it's more than a geographic location. It is true that very likely Babylon will be rebuilt and probably be rebuilt right there on the river Euphrates, maybe even where it is today. And it probably will be the center of the Antichrist's earthly uh, activity. But this one is different. There's something incredibly demonic, mysterious, strangely alluring and spiritual. All the world's religions will be rolled into one massive amalgamation. That's why it's appropriate to call it a mother. 
It is a mystery, but it's also a mother because it is the mother of all religions. And really all religions, all false religions, goes back to Babel. That is where all religion started. All religion is the same. All false religion. They may say different names. They may wear different little clothes, have different little rites, but it's all the same thing. We're going to try to achieve some sort of nirvana or eternity or goodness by our good deeds. Totally different than Bible salvation. But notice the very graphic language God says. This is a harlot, he says. It's nothing more than a harlot. Now, in the Bible, when it's not a true prostitute that God's referring to, it is referring to unfaithfulness to God, specifically idolatry, meaning you have gone away from your faithful commitment to God, and you are now following a false god. Now, why is it that this is such a powerful weapon of Satan? Because only a demonically empowered religion can unite the world against God. Politics and economics can't do it. It's too divisive. Everybody talks about how divisive our <clears throat> two-party system, political party system is in America. Culture can't bring us together because it's too geographical. It has to be something that transcends all of that. And so Satan, disguised as an angel of light, will empower ministers. They will be the most engaging speakers. They will have incredible ability to move crowds. And in fact, they will be given power by Satan to do these signs and wonders. Now, for some reason, God called the false prophet a woman, verse 4, 17 and verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Will the false prophet be a female or perhaps a transgendered man? Today, increasingly, many, and I even struggle to say the word most religious leaders, especially in the left wing, are females, often LGBTQ. Notice it is a woman, and she is incredibly wealthy. The church, the this religion, I hate to use the word church, but the, this false religion is full of gold and precious stones and pearls. And it is hypersexual. It says she holds in her hand a cup that's full. I mean, a full cup of what? Fornication, porneia is the Greek word there. I mean, so this religion is full of riches. It's uh, it's uh, hypersexualized, maybe even led by a woman or a transgendered man. Now let's explain what's happening here. Let's start in verse number seven. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. So the angel speaks to John and says, uh, John, why? are you marveling? Or why are you so, why is this such a, a wonderment to you? Well, from a human standpoint, that sounds like a silly question, right? If I was John, I'd be saying, uh, well, I don't know, maybe because it's a scarlet colored monster that has seven heads and 10 horns. Yeah, that's, you know, nothing weird about that. But really what the angel was saying is, now, John, don't flip out. <laughs> Stay with me here. Hang on, because I'm going to explain it. 
And then he says, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman. And then specifically it says, of the beast that carries her. So what follows in the next couple of verses are about the beast that is carrying the false prophet. Remember now, two tracks going here. The false prophet, false religion, and then this political world. And so the beast, otherwise known as the Antichrist, carries the false prophet. This is a state-sponsored religion. Now, in our world today, the only current group that does that to any large degree is Islam. In fact, many of the Middle Eastern states are theocracies. They're led by a person from the Muslim uh, world. Notice what it says, that it has seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. Now, we looked at that last week, and we'll explain it a little more in verse number 9 when we get there. But let's go to verse number 8, and this verse has to be taken in bite-sized pieces in order to understand it. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Notice what it says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not. Was and is not. So it sounds like they're gone? Well, sort of. In chapter 7 and chapter 13, when we went through that, we learned that the Antichrist is a military mastermind, unequaled political um, person, human genius, an incredible leader, energized by Satan himself. As we look back further into the Old Testament book of Daniel, he is an outstanding orator. He is a financial wizard, verse chapter number 8. All of those things would be nice to have right now, a strong leader, a financial wizard that could put things together. But he is deadly. He's a thousand Joseph Stalins and Adolf Hitlers and Saddam Hussein's and Mao Zedong's all wrapped up in one. This is the Antichrist. Well, he is Satan's supreme human instrument to destroy Israel and all believers. His plan is to conquer the world for Satan's glory. So how does he do that? Well, he's going to do it by that little phrase, he was, but he is not. And so that's our first fact today. Here are some interesting facts we need to look at. Number one, he's a beast that was and is not and is about to come. He was, he is not, and is about to come. Now back in chapter 13 and verse number three, we're told about this beast. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded, as it were, not probably a fact, but as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And so the Antichrist has a fatal wound, or at least it appears to be. It appears probably it was an illusion, but whatever the case is, this fatal wound is healed. This fatal wound, so he's dead, and he comes back to life, will cause the world to be so amazed that they'll say, 
oh, this must be a Messiah, this must be God. And it, in fact, is a counterfeit. So he comes back from the dead. Well, he comes back new, but definitely not improved. Because when he comes back, there's going to be something tremendously intolerant about him. He's going to join together with the religious system, which before he had coexisted with. And then later in verse number 16 of this chapter, he's going to kill the religious system. So he's going to kill the prophet and the religious system. You say, well, is that the end of religion during the tribulation? No period. No. He's going to then focus it all on himself. The fact of the matter is, folks, false religion over the last 50 years in this world and in America has grown exponentially. People all over saying that they're the Messiah. That's what it's going to be like there. has been flourishing. I can recall one year before I came here in 1979, the demonically energized Jim Jones led people into the Guyan, Guyana um, jungles and on November 18th, 1978, convinced 913 people to drink Kool-Aid laced with poison. They were all found dead. Well, he was saying he was Christ. And there are people all over the world, even today, that say, I'm Christ, I'm God. Well, multiply that 10,000 times. It will not even come close to the deception that's going on. So what happens to this beast? He was, and then he was not, but he's going to come back again. And that's the second point. He's a beast that comes from the abyss. So verse 8, again, the beast that thou sawest was and is not, but now he comes back. He ascends out of the bottomless pit. He ascends out of the bottomless pit. That's the Greek word abyssos, or we get the word abyss. It's the same word as the sea in chapter 13 of verse number 1. What is the abyss? It is the abode of demons, the underworld of Satan. It's this place somewhere where Satan and his demons have this headquarters, although we know that Satan has the ability to roam the earth and even has the ability to go to heaven. He's going to be cast out of heaven, though, during the tribulation period. But during that time, he's going to go down to the abyss, this um, antichrist. But when he comes back from the abyss, when he comes back, he's going to be demonically filled but it's not going to be for his good. He thinks he's going to come back and conquer the world. But look what verse 8 says. He's going to go to perdition. What is perdition? It's just the word destruction. That's what the word means. So he's going to be here, then he's going to die. He's going to descend to the abyss, this underworld of the demons. He's going to come back thinking he's going to conquer and win the world, but he's not. He's just going to go to perdition. He misunderstands where he's going. And conservative Bible scholars feel that what happens here is that he exists um, for the first three and a half years, uh, going well with the false prophet. And then at some point, he begins to turn on the false prophet at midpoint or later. And it says later in verse number 16, he's going to cause her to be desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And so he's going to absolutely kill the religion that has been there. It's a false religion, but they're going to start a whole new false religion. 
And it says the world's going to wonder about this. And it says all the world shall wonder. Look at verse 8. All the world begins to wonder about this. They're going to see this false prophet, and he, or the, the beast, he kills the false prophet. And they're going to say, man, who is this person? And people are going to be deceived. Those are the ones who were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Who are the people that are going to be deceived? Who are the ones that are going to be just sucked into this new false religion? It's going to be those who were not the elect. You say, well, who are those? Those are the people who didn't accept Christ. You know, God foreknows who is going to accept him and who is not going to accept him. Before he even swung this world into space, God knew who would be saved and who would be not. To know, foreknow something doesn't mean that he forecauses it to know. It doesn't mean that from the foundation of the world, God said, I'm going to send this one to heaven and this one to hell. No. An astronomer can tell you when Halley's Comet is going to appear again. He foreknows it. But it doesn't mean he causes it to happen. If you want some clarity on this matter of who gets deceived in this era, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 says it this way, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knows who's going to receive him. God knows who is going to reject him. If you receive him, yes, you're one of the elect. If you choose to not receive him, then you're not. Nothing takes God by surprise. God never says, oops, I never thought of that. No. God is going to rule and reign, and those who were tricked are those who, from the foundation of the world, had chosen not to. Tragic. The whole world collapsing around them. You would think that with God's loving, firm hand of justice on them, they would say, oh, I give up, I give up, I, I receive Christ. But that would require them to submit. That would require them to say, I've been wrong. And that would require them to choose the narrow path. But strangely, when they see the beast, oh, let's go for the beast. These people are part of the Never Jesus campaign. Never Jesus. Anything but Jesus. I mean, we'll take the beast, we'll take the false prophet, but never Jesus. Did you know false prophets always have three key wrong doctrines? Number one, they always have a problem with Jesus Christ, his deity, who he is, Number two, they always have a problem with the authority of Scripture. And number three, they always have a problem with salvation by grace through faith alone. Those three things always are earmarks of false prophets. They don't like Christ. They have a problem with His deity. They don't like the authority of Scripture and God's plan of salvation. Now, in verse 9, the Holy Spirit is going to give us a wonderful, gracious heads up about what is going to happen during this period? And so there are some facts. Number one, the beast that was and is not and is about to come. Then second of all, he's a beast that comes from the abyss. So he comes back. The third one is, he's a beast with seven heads. Verse 9. And here is the mind. Let's, in fact, let's read verse 9 together, would you? Let's read it out loud. Ready? Begin. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. That little statement says, here is the mind which hath wisdom. 
And isn't that what we need? We need godly wisdom. And that's what the angel is saying. He is saying, now, John, this is not going to be understandable unless you have godly wisdom. If you just take a surface look at this, it's not going to happen. So I want you to be wise and have discernment. A pastor told about how he had rushed his own baby daughter to the emergency room to have her stomach pumped. She was born without the ability to smell. And she was crawling around on the kitchen floor and came to a bowl of used paint thinner, which looked like milk to her, and she couldn't smell. She drank and got very sick. You see, false assumptions lead to wrong conclusions. There's going to be precious little discernment in that day. People are going to not be able to smell how bad it is, not be able to see or hear how bad things are. By the way, I just want to give a shout out here to God's incredible concept of local churches. Do you realize God's brilliant plan of allowing you to go to a place in person, not on TV or on podcasts where all of that can be manipulated, but in person where you can come week by week, year by year, decade by decade, you can watch the life of the pastor, you can listen the highs and the lows, and they have them all. Folks, God's plan of being not deceived is to be able to be in a local church. And if you're not in a local church, my friend, you are in big trouble because that's, uh, that is exactly the ones that get deceived. Now, the seven mountains. Now, I know there are people that talk about seven mountains today. That that's not what this is. This is seven mountains upon which the woman sits. Now, it is well known that Rome has seven mountains around it. For many years, commentators, many conservative commentators, felt like this was saying that out of Rome was going to come this false prophet, this uh, place. And it's a f- truth that the Roman church, even though the Roman Catholic has some wonderful uh, things about it and the uh, fact is that they're pro-life, but uh, it is certainly has a corrupt history. But it can't be that, because if it was just that, it would be so easy, because John was living in the Roman Empire, and if he had read that, oh, it's Rome, I, I don't think he'd need wisdom about that. So what God was saying was it's something much deeper. So what are these mountains? Well, remember, sometimes in the Old Testament, nations and leaders or and an extension of the leader, their nation, was considered a mountain. And so that leads us to the fourth fact, and that is this. So the beast that has seven heads, or actually seven mountains of nations, we'll explain that in a moment, but notice that specifically about this, verse 10, he's a beast with six heads that are gone, and a seventh to come. Now you have to follow very closely the tenses of the verbs here, or else you don't get this. Verse 10, and there are seven kings. So seven mountains or seven kings or seven nations. Five are fallen, so they're past. One is, and the other is not yet come. So past, present, and future. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And so who are the heads? These are the seven nations of this political beast. Sometimes the Antichrist is known 
as a person. Sometimes he's known as a, as a system. In this case, it's kind of thinking of it in that way. The mountains represent kings or represents their country. Five are fallen. Well, now thank the Lord, God gives us the answer in Scripture. It's always wonderful when God gives us some, his own commentary. And uh, so we can go to the book of Daniel chapter 2. We have it here on the screen so you can kind of follow along. So what is the first kingdom? That is Babylon. Chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 36, this is the dream. We will tell the interpretation, verse 37. Oh, thou king, you're a king. You have kingdom and power and strength and glory. Verse number 38, thou art the head of gold. And so the first vision that God gave to Daniel was this vision. The first king, the first kingdom was Babylon. Then verse 39, and after these arise another kingdom. That's number two. And that as we know, is Medo-Persia, as history records, inferior to thee, so it descends in strength. Then there's a third kingdom, which is of brass. Many have drawn uh, what it looks like. And then Rome is the fourth kingdom, verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. But in verse 41, the toes are feet of clay. And so Daniel's image pictured four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The upper head was gold, then the upper part of the body was silver, the bronze was the midsection, and then steel or iron. Four world empires. At the time John wrote, Rome was, still was the one that is. But now this gives back in Revelation 17 a little different number than four talks about seven. So if you go back to the beginning of history, at least biblical history, there are actually two additional world powers. You have to go back to the Pentateuch, go to the first five books of the Bible. And the first one was Egypt. Actually, the first world power was Egypt, the ancient land of the pharaohs and the Nile. Oh, you can go to places today and see things from the time of Egypt. Everybody loves to see those. In scripture, Egypt is mentioned 700 times. And then there's a second kingdom, world kingdom, and that is Assyria. The Assyrians were a very wicked and warlike people. They developed a vast empire over the north, like Iran and Iraq and Syria today. They are referred to many times in scripture and are enemies of Judah and of Israel. They're strong people and in their own pictures they pictured themselves with very heavy eyebrows and beards. Their name, Assyria, comes from the Hebrew word Asher, the tribe of Asher. So now let's go back and count the kingdoms. So we have Egypt as number one. We have Assyria, number two, Babylon, number three, Medo-Persia, number four, Greece, five, and Rome, six. So let's go back to this verse here in uh, Revelation uh, 17, verse 10. There are seven kings, so that's the seven. Five are fallen, and one is, that's Rome, and the other is not yet to come. So and that's that one that's not yet to come, that is the Antichrist. That's his kingdom. And so 
Now you'd say, well, pastor, I thought there's other world powers. Well, yes, there's China going on at this time and there's other places, but they don't have any kind of connection with God's people. And they did not have the same connection with the Tower of Babel. Now, friend, we are coming to a time where this seventh head is going to raise up. And so that's the final fact this morning, and that is this. Let's go over those facts again. He's a beast that was and is not and is about to come. He's a beast that comes from the abyss. He's a beast with seven heads. He's a beast with six heads that are gone. So the first five, Rome would be that six that was at that time, but now they're gone. But now we're to the point where the seventh is to come. And this seventh that's to come is not going to have a very long run. He's a beast where the seventh head has a short reign. Look what it says in verse 10. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. He thinks he's going to have a, all to himself. World's going to be great. Fall at his feet. Everything's going to be going his way. But it doesn't work that way. By the way, just so we know, that's the same any world power today. Any particular candidate they may be there for a few years, even a few decades, but the truth of the matter is they do not last because only Jesus' kingdom is eternal. Look what it says in chapter 12 and verse 12 of the book of uh, Revelation. Therefore, ye heavens and ye dwell with them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is coming down unto you. He has great wrath. He's coming into this false religion. He's coming into this false kingdom. He knows he has but a short time. The devil is in the 15th round, and Satan's going to fight like Hades, I'll tell you for sure. It's a coming empire. Peace, they'll say, and tolerance. Now, let me just take a few moments to close this morning and just let us know how dangerous this situation is. Celebrated Catholic monk Thomas Merton told an ecumenical gathering of dozens of modern church leaders and pagans even. He said, my dear brothers, we are already one, but imagine we're not. We have to discover our original unity. Did you know that the holiness Dalai Lama, who is God to the Tibetan Buddhists, he has been well received by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, has met twice with the Pope. In fact, the Dalai Lama said, we are both the same, both the same. It is popular in Christendom to say that Christ has just revealed himself and God has revealed himself in many different ways. They falsely say that we all worship the same God. They say Allah and Islam is the same as Jesus and Christianity and Krishna and Buddha, we're all the same. They say they're all the same. Many paths to God, Jesus only being one of them. Today, the National Council of Churches condemns missionary activity as being arrogant and anti-cultural and nationalistic. Sadly, there are lots of Christian leaders who've bought into that. But we were told in the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to bring everybody together and establish a world religion. Several years ago, I read about a report and I found it here this week. 200 delegates from religious groups all over the world gathered in Stanford University. They began drafting a charter for an international 
interfaith institution called the Organization of United Religions. Reverend William Swing, Episcopal Bishop in San Francisco, said this, quote, I've spent a lot of time meditating with Hindus, chanting with Buddhists, and I feel like I've been enormously enriched. I've gone back, read my own scriptures, and it's amazing how they begin to read differently when you're exposed to more truth. More truth? I wonder what that nutcase found outside of a perfect Bible. More truth than a perfect Bible? Folks, Satan is moving full speed ahead. Last week I mentioned how this uh, synchristic fusion churches are coming together and they're going to, they're putting different faiths together. And then of all things this week, I just read a report that in Nigeria, there is a new sect called Chrislam. Chrislam, a putting coming together supposedly of Christianity and Islam. And then I also read that in Abu Dhabi, they are, they have planned a religious center for cultures on the drawing board. They have these elaborate plans to bring the world together. All at the same time, Christians who believe the Bible, Christians who embrace creation, who testify that Jesus is Lord, not Muhammad is Lord, not anybody else is Lord, Jesus is Lord, are called haters or Christo-fascist or dangerous or Christian nationalist. In fact, this week I read, I was so taken back, those who are uh, overseeing uh, and investigating government overreach have found that this administration has done private searches on citizens and they are finding people who have purchased Bibles and they're keeping their eyes on them because they feel like they might be someone that be against the government. Talk about paving the way for the Antichrist false global church. Because the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to say, it makes no difference what you worship or who you worship, just as long as you give me your allegiance. Did you know that we are called to warn? In fact, Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 7 says, we are on the walls. So thou, o son of man, I have set thee as a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Warn them. Sound the alarm. I close with this story from Charles Swindoll, the well-known Bible teacher and past president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, you know, history records a remarkable account of the destruction of an ancient town. The watchman on the walls would blow the trumpet and would cry out when he saw a foe approaching. But sensing that the people had begun to resent them for giving false alarms, they just decided, well, we'll just stay quiet then. Regrettably, not long afterwards, the enemy did actually come. And the city that could have been saved was assaulted and devastated. When it was all done, it was nothing but smoking ruins. Later, someone erected a small memorial ascribed with the following epitaph. Listen, here stood a town that was destroyed by silence. Destroyed by silence. With the Apostle Paul, he said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Will we be considered crazy or 
right wing or out there or whatever. Well, maybe. But I know one thing. God has called us to be watchmen on the walls and to warn people lovingly. Yes, do all we can to engage people. But the fact of the matter is, may this church, may each of us be the kind of Christ-loving, Bible-loving people that are watchmen to a nation. Our heads are bowed. And our we eyes. hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.